we for our kids want a school that will prepare them for the world as it is now to prepare them to thrive not just professionally not just financially but also mentally and spiritually um, and and in terms of bodily health and our current school system totally failing on that this is joseph ring i'm a cattle feedlot operator in northern illinois and you're listening to the vance crow podcast Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we have Simone Collins on. Simone is the wife of Malcolm, who was a huge hit on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago. I invited her on because two listeners of the podcast, who I'm very close with, the Comston family, said, hey, I think you should have Simone on and ask her about her schools. How does it work? How does the curriculum set up? So we set up a podcast, and as soon as Simone started talking, I realized we have so much more to talk about than just this school that she has set up. So we talk about how do you raise geniuses, what is the school system doing that's breaking down, what about culture, and what is dating like in the modern age? This is a fun conversation that gets abruptly ended when Simone's five-month-old baby starts crying and she has to handle it, but no big deal. It was a great conversation. I'm so glad you're here. We're going to get to the interview in just a moment. But many of you know that we've been doing remote podcasts because we've been expanding the Legacy Interview Studios. That's because people have been inviting their mom and dad to be interviewed by me to record their life stories so they can be passed down to future generations. We had so many of them, in fact, that we had to create our own waiting room and area to have lunch. If you would like your parents to have a full day experience where they join me here in the studio, we sit down with dad, then we sit down with mom, and then we have lunch together, and then we sit down with dad and mom together to talk about all the stories that are accumulated through the experiences that they had and they want to make sure get passed down, then go to LegacyInterviews.com to find out more. There you can book a full day interview with your parents and me. And we will have an experience for them. And then we can transfer those experiences, not just to a video, but to a leather-bound book where we get to record those stories to be passed down to future generations. So for more information, go to LegacyInterviews.com. All right, without further ado, let's head to the interview with Simone Collins. Simone Collins, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be speaking with you. I love listening to your conversations with people. Well, you are married to Malcolm Collins, who blew the doors off of the podcast we did a couple weeks ago. So I guess to start off, why did you marry Malcolm? (sighs) That's such a good question, because I really didn't want to marry anyone. I wanted to live alone forever. So yeah, he had to have something going on. Um, But I think he has what any, in our estimation, perfect relationship has, which is... um, an alignment with my values and with my goals in life. Um, and we love working together. And I think when you have that, um, you, you really have the strong foundation of a relationship and the kind of relationship we have is one in which each of us is committed to making the other person the best version of them that they could possibly be. And we even committed to that in our, in our marriage vows. We said something around like, oh, I don't, I don't promise to love you, but I do promise to push you to be a better person always, which is not typically, you know, people are like, oh, he loves me for who I am. But like, we're the opposite of that. He loves me for who I have the potential to become. And he helps me become that person. And I do the same for him. And 
there's something about that kind of relationship that's extra special in my view and that made for me marriage worth it because I'm a very introverted, private, wants to be alone and control everything kind of person. And of course, marriage and especially having kids means giving all that up to a great extent. Um, it's, it's a weird than... thing, right? Like when when I do these legacy interviews where I ask people about their life stories and their yeah. wisdom. And when I ask people that are over the age of 60, like, what did you want to be when you grew up? There were a lot of women that were like, oh, I just wanted to be a mom. Like, oh, I always yeah. knew I was going to be a wife. But yeah. to hear you say it, like, it's totally natural for me to hear mm -hmm. the, oh, I was going to be alone. What do you think happened along the way that, that either are you an anomaly or do you think you are a representative of your culture? I think I'm representative of my culture. Um, very much so. And I grew up in Silicon Valley in like the heart of high tech, urban culture. And I do think that the pervasive thing is not to get married, not to have kids. And I actually remember for me, the first time I met someone who wanted to be a mother, I was, I think, 13 or 16 years old. I was a teenager by that point. And I met a young woman who was around my same age who was like, oh, you know, really, I, I'm just, I can't wait to be a mother and have kids. And I'm like, oh my God, like what? This is, this is a thing? No one else I knew, no one had any interest in having kids or getting married. And actually many of my childhood friends are still single and they, they focus in on their careers for the most part and, and not, not many of them have kids. It is not the norm. Yeah, right now, if I interview somebody that's in their 40s or 50s, and they're doing this kind of uh, retrospective on their life, when I get to the when did you decide that this is what you wanted to do with your career was be a mom, they all have this like, well, I, I mean, I, I wanted to have a career, but I decided to do this other thing. And you know, they love being a mom, they're sitting there, you know, talking all about how much they love their children, and, you know, how much this has brought meaning to their life. But they're embarrassed because they know culturally that this is not something that their counterparts are willing to say. Yeah. And this is a big problem, right? Because becoming a parent, getting married, all of these things are typically dampeners in so many of the, the status oriented things that exist in our society. Getting married makes you worse. Having kids makes you worse. Uh, you know, it's harder to travel, which makes you look really fancy. It's harder to you know, spend all your money on cool clothes and doing whatever you want, whenever you want. Um, you have to start compromising on how you schedule your time. Yeah, it's, I, I think it's a really big problem. And as you know, we're really worried about demographic collapse. We're worried about broken relationship markets and culturing a culture that doesn't, that doesn't idolize married life or family life is to a great extent uh, to blame here. So aside from being Malcolm Collins's wife, you are a person totally and completely. So who are you and what is it that you spend your time doing? That's so funny um, because Malcolm and I are, are much less of a an individual person and more like two faces of the same entity, <laughs> um, which is also so the opposite of what culture would encourage these days. You know, it's all about, well, who am I? Like, well, I am a, a businesswoman. I am on my own. And typically the the modern stereotype of a wife of a powerful husband is like this woman who kind of rolls her eyes at him and like pulls him back down to earth and is like, well, he's not all that smart. I'm like picturing Melinda Gates or something. And uh, I, oh, I hate that. I hate that so much. Everything I do is with Malcolm. Um, so I am also a CEO of a travel business. We run it together. I am also a co-author of our books. 
let's be honest though, Malcolm comes up with all the good ideas and I edit them, which I mean, I make them legible. I, I do a lot of work, but I don't come up with the ideas, but like we do it all completely um, in concert. And, and even with ideas, like just yesterday, I asked him what his theory was on why why animals have males in higher proportions, whereas plants don't. Um, and he bounced a theory to me and then I said it back to him, but misunderstood what he was saying. And he's like, oh, that, but it was a completely new idea. So that's kind of how our entire marriage is, which is life gets thrown at us. He punts something to me. I punt something totally different back to him. And then we get something that neither of us could have put together. Um, and that's how we work together. And that's what we do. We do that with books. We do that with the travel business that we run, Travel Max. And we do that with our pronatalist advocacy and with our school, the Collins Institute. When people think about the life that they want to have, they imagine, I would love to have this with my spouse. But I think in practice, it was so little modeled in their world that you don't have it. Like there's this very Simpson-esque thing where men are these like big dumb oafs and they're just barely bumbling through the world and without their wives doing what you described, rolling their eyes, like how, how would they ever survive? And I didn't see that model. Like in my, in my parents' relationship, um, there were definitely roles that they played. My dad played a very dad role. My mom played a very mom role, but they didn't resent the roles that they played. And mm. I feel like today you're kind of taught, like, if you're given one of those roles, this is like um, being lost in some ancient uh, folly that people wish they could get out of. Yeah, like you feel embarrassed about it or like, I feel that so many women who are, in many cases, homemakers, feel like they have to performatively have a career. Like, no, I'm really an author. No, I'm really, uh, I have a business or like whatever it is, you know, or I consult people or I'm a life coach or I sell jewelry, like whatever it is. Um, and it may not be an actual, you know, if we're saying like it wouldn't sustain the family, like if, if suddenly like the, the sole bread or the primary breadwinner lost their job, but they still feel like they have to say it because like, otherwise it would be, you know, a bad thing. Um, but, you know, we also think um, Malcolm posited, and I very much agree that the nuclear family as we know it, where dad goes out to work, mom stays home with the kids, is sort of this short-term aberration in the history of humanity that really what, what the natural state of a family has been is what's known by some as the corporate family, where you have the mother and the father typically working in their home, in the family business, um, often their kids get involved. Often there's, you know, other people who are living in and around their house, helping out with childcare, helping out with whatever it is the family business or businesses are, um, who may be related, who may not be related. Um, and that is, I think, a much more natural model. And I find it very heartening that we're moving back to that in many ways in, in, with some very modern adaptations, but we're still going back to it. I think it's a lot more sustainable. And that is a world in which to become married, to become a parent doesn't mean for one parent giving up a career or giving up prestige or like impact on the broader outside world in, in the current time period. Um, it also doesn't mean putting 
you know, all of your eggs in one basket with one partner going out and bringing in all the income, the amount of pressure that puts on families and especially men who typically get shunted into that role is huge. Like, I don't, I don't want, I don't want that part either. And I feel like, um, you know, families that work more dynamically in these, these extended groups are much more robust, resilient, and able to take care of each other and also thrive individually. Just the very act of describing a family as the nuclear family feels really natural to an American. Mm -hmm. But if you talk to an Asian culture, they describe it as, oh, the, the, uh, the Westerners talk about the nuclear family. They have actually gone as far down as they can yeah. to differentiate themselves from the wider fabric. And you think about that and you're like, I didn't even realize there was a family that was outside of the nuclear family. And in their language, to be able to describe something as the nuclear family is like, a little bit, I think, like us saying, um, a single parent family, right? It's, yeah. it's stripped out of all of the connective tissue that makes a family able to uh, thrive and, and uh, you know, really exist in a, in a world that is not designed to keep you alive. Absolutely. Yeah, it's wild. Well, and people now are talking a lot about just even further the atomization of society. Things, you know, becoming, now there isn't even a nuclear family. It's just, it's just you and your computer screen or your phone by yourself. That's, you're on your own now. So you guys have started a school. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you is a couple that I really trust and love the Comstons living out in uh, the western part of the country said, hey, why don't you have Simone on? We've started reading their books and talk to her about the curriculum they've set up. Why are they doing a school? And you know, how are they going to even know that it's successful? Because they're doing something so different. Those are such good questions. Um, I mean, we first and foremost, very selfishly decided to start a school because we don't trust the existing educational system with our own children. And therefore we need to build one ourselves. Um, most families address this from just the homeschooling front, like, okay, well, let's just do this for our own family, take care of our own kids. Um, but we also feel like in terms of impact on society, education is one of those things that can make such a profound impact. And if there was a way to enable many, many, many more young people to have an, an actually functional education, why would we not take a shot at that? Is it a moonshot? Maybe. But we actually think it's approachable. Um, so stop me at any point to like divert this or ask questions, but um, I can sort of give you an overview of, of why we think education is bankrupt today, because I think that explains so much of our school and our approach to education. Um, so in general, what we understand as education, you know, like kids going to school, sitting in a classroom, you know, facing someone up front, um, that really saw its rise with the industrial revolution. And, and to a great extent, it existed to educate and create interchangeable parts in the British Imperial Empire. So you could take one bureaucrat, switch them out for another. If they all went through the same education system, you knew they had the same basic skills and like some kind of interchangeable cog. You could just switch them out. It was really useful for that. Um, it wasn't about getting people to excel. It wasn't about teaching excellence. It was about basically curating bureaucrats for a system. And that worked for that. It also worked for the lifelong corporate job where people were going into these really large companies and, you know, again, being interchangeable and having this predictability and performance, even if it was all mediocre, was good. Um, of course, now we're seeing the death of the lifelong corporate job. There isn't that job security. And we're also seeing with the rise of AI, basically anything that that 
is based on, you know, common sense, general competency, you know, being just good enough and copying and pasting essentially like that's not a, that's not a skill that's going to get you employed anymore, period. So we need a school system that, that does more than that, that generates lumpy, weird, unexpected, unpredictable, but excellent and, and very bright people who have very, you know, who are just world-class in one or two things and who are capable of functioning and everything else. But, you know, you don't have to be like, you know, we don't have to have the same mediocre emphasis. I love that concept of lumpy and weird because it is the anomalies that will create things. And one of the really weird things that you just said there was we want kids to have one or two deep competencies and then be, uh, you know, okay at the rest of them. Because in truth, that's all the human mind can handle, right? Like you really can't be good at all things. A Renaissance Mm -hmm. person is a rare extreme example but it would make somebody a lot better if they had one or two deep skills and then didn't focus on trying to be adequate at everything else. But how do you set that up as an education system? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so first, I want to say like Renaissance man, the, a really interesting thing though about the concept of the Renaissance man, and we wouldn't drop it, is, is that we think that many forms of genius come from interdisciplinary thinking. Um, and, and you actually notice that many of these Renaissance men will use like their knowledge of biology to innovate in the field of physics or something else. Like there's a lot of um, really interesting ways that I think a good, strong interdisciplinary knowledge will help you innovate in certain fields that you never would be able to if you just like only did maths or only did science or only did writing. So, you know, we very much support that. Um, so the way that we cultivate that and, and encourage it Um, is first, we just totally dismantle the education system as it is. You know, don't think classrooms, don't think teachers. Let's look at every element of genius, every element of high achievement, and look at the best way uh, on an a la carte basis to build that up. And, And we say that because when you look at the education system as it is today, it is not just the education system. It's sort of become like this huge bureaucratic lump of a lot of essential services that are not like very few of them actually have anything to do with student achievement or outcomes. Like think about it, like one of the big concerns when the pandemic hit was was food service, like literally food aid to children in need. Uh, the question came, how are we going to deliver food to all of these children who are dependent on school breakfasts and lunches? Um, also, there's the the element of childcare. You know, who's I have to, I have to go to work. Who's going to watch my kid and make sure they don't like, you know, eat a can of glue or something. I don't know. (laughs) Um, So, you know, these are two elements that have nothing to do with education. You know, they have to do with childcare. They have to do with a safe place for a child to be throughout the day. They have to do with giving the child food. So we remove that from the equation because people that are optimized to do that are not the same people who are optimized to make your child a genius. Um, The way the school itself is set up um, is designed to be something that works both in person, but also remotely. So if you are in you know, a very remote part of the world, you can do this, you know, with your family while they're traveling or while they're, you know, wherever they are off the grid, or you can do this um, with, you know, in the middle of a city with, with other kids, you know, all in a community center together with other people watching you who aren't your parents. Um, And the way it works is every child has, every student has an account with our school and it looks like uh, are you, do you play video games or like, do you, are you familiar with skill trees or tech trees? I am familiar with tech trees. Sure. So this is the concept of, 
um, as you're going along in a video game, you have to choose, do we want to do writing or do we want to do pottery? Because if we do pottery, this means we're going to be able to move along the technology development in a different way than if we had developed writing. If we do writing, we might get to currency because we can do accounting and bookkeeping. If we do pottery, we might get to gunpowder faster because we can collect materials. And so depending on which path you go, your society builds up in a different way. Exactly. And and that's that's exactly the way our school works. Um, so as a student, you you log in, you look at your skill tree um, and you can decide, you know, am I going to move along the branching pathways of math today or of science or of history or of life skills or of sales or like we have all these different like we and also we combine traditional academic um, subjects with things like you know, psychological development, like with, you know, how to build friendships, how to build a career, financial management, because these, these things also kind of matter for thriving. Um, and the way that we cultivate excellence is we motivate, um, well, basically, we, we don't impose extrinsic rewards on students. So we don't make things unfun by rewarding them, which is a common thing It's as soon as you pay someone to do their hobby, they stop liking it, you know, so we don't, we don't reward with grades, we don't reward with um, incentives or, or, or badges, we reward with more. So if you really like uh, writing, then by every every time you basically master a particular more foundational skill, additional nodes in your skill tree will open up with more advanced skills within that domain. Um, and by the time you get very advanced in any particular domain, we further reward your advancement by introducing you to world-class players in that domain and encouraging you to pitch real-world projects with them. So let's say that you find yourself really, really into mycology or obsessed with mushrooms. You think they're fascinating, you know, and you've, you've basically maxed out all of our curriculum on mycology. Um, you're, you're past like a post-grad level. Then we're like, hey, why don't you Google the top mycologists in the world? All right. How about, you know, we're, we're going to work with you on building a pitch for a peer-reviewed paper on this weird, obs weird obscure, um, you know, Colombian mushroom that you really want to study. And let's we will work with you to give you a shot at pitching to them. No promises, but we will get you in front of them and we will help you make a pitch. And maybe you can, you know, we'll help you raise the grant money to go out and study that with them. So again, it's rewarding with more and it's encouraging not just advanced uh, learning in any particular domain where a student's really picking up and really becoming a genius, but also kick, kickstarting their career, you know, starting what in the past would be known as apprenticeship where you're really doing impactful real world work. Um, and so that's, that's key. Now, a lot of this sounds, I'm sure to many people who either homeschool or unschool their kids like unschooling and unschooling is basically homeschooling, but with like zero guide rails. So basically you do you kid, no tests. I'm not going to tell you what to read. Like you just explore whatever it is you want, which has by some research, and there's not a ton of research on unschooling, but it has shown very impressive outcomes, uh, especially vis-a-vis -vis traditional school. Some of that no doubt has to do with the families who allow their children to unschool. They're probably people who give them really great intellectual resources. Nevertheless, there's something to be said for giving children that freedom to explore what they find intellectually interesting. The one problem with unschooling is that those who go through that typically develop 
pretty severe test anxiety if they decide to enter the university system because suddenly like I don't know how to deal with SATs you know like there's no prep for that so that's not ideal um, and they also tend to be very 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 underpowered um, in certain domains often math um, because there aren't as many materials that really teach math the way it it should be taught where you know it's really about this creative imaginary endeavor uh, or imaginative in, endeavor and it's not taught that way so people just don't do it and then of course they have like zero math so the way and therein lies the the challenge of yeah. of trying a new system. So yeah. uh, my wife and I were exploring. We have a two year old and a seven month old. We're like mm. trying to figure out what are we going to do for education, and we've come across the Waldorf system, which I think is mm. like a really interesting outdoors. It's very much in the domain of uh, creativity and yeah. building skills. Uh, I interviewed a couple of Waldorf teachers here in the studio. But one of the hesitations my wife has is she's an aerospace engineer and the level of math that she had to be at by the time she went to college was not insignificant. And she mm -hmm. often talks about how her math skills were plenty good. She was able to take pre-calc, but in her or calculus classes in her high school. But when she got to college, her um, computer programming skills weren't up to snuff. And uh, so there she was yeah. like struggling to keep up. So when you do these programs, the challenge that I think I see with them is if you go too far away from the norm, then if your kids want to do something that needs to be mainstreamed, you have to have an mm -hmm. engineering degree in order to mm -hmm. be able to get this job. How do you make sure you haven't gone across the river that means that they, uh, they can't get back or the, the, the distance to get back isn't too far? Yeah, that's, so that's, um, totally something we think about because we, we don't want to have that, right? We, we don't have the unschool, unschooling outcome. So to stay, basically to stay in the school, to, to maintain this level of freedom and have all the fun that our school theoretically offers, hopefully offers, is you have to get a certain number of points in each week. Uh, and the points shift dynamic, dynamically in weight, meaning that if you are very, very advanced in a particular field, you're getting like, you know, 0.5 points for each each node you complete each skill you master in that field right so the, the rewards are essentially what you're earning like the essential things that you're earning are diminishing whereas let's say like i'm super super advanced in history and i have like nothing on math it's going to get to the point where i'm getting point you know one five points for every history node that i complete going forward and i'm getting 10 points for every math math node and i have to complete 100 points every week so the only way in the end that I'm going to be able to stay in this school is by doing some math. Like I'm just going to have to do the math. So we do provide extrinsic rewards where intrinsic rewards are absent, which is to say, you know, we do start to really reward with points, essentially, you know, grades or whatever it is that requires you to stay in school. Um, the things that are hard for people to do. Um, we also though, you know, we, we don't want to be punishing about the way that we provide education. I think a lot of people don't like math because math is really poorly taught. Um, there's this amazing essay that completely changed the way that I looked at math called A Mathematician's Lament um, that I really encourage anyone listening to this who grew up hating math like I did to read. Um, and our goal with this school is to provide with every single node, every single skill that someone can master within our massive skill tree that we're building right now, um, absolutely the best resources ever, um, which is to say that we, we've created a, do you know, like the website Reddit or any basic forum where like things get upvoted and downvoted. So rather than every node being like, okay, now read this book and learn the thing before you get an assessment, we say, 
here is, you know, it's basically like a forum thread or a Reddit thread of like, here are all these different ways you can learn this skill. Here is a course by the teaching company slash Wonderium. Here's a YouTube video. Here's a Wikipedia thing. Here's an interactive mobile game, like all these things, or here's an exercise you can go do outside. Um, and then students over time will upvote and downvote the resources that they like or dislike, you know, the things that helped them and didn't, they can also add resources. So if there's something that they found really effective, they add it. So we're hoping that over time, you know, even if, okay, crap, I have to take some math. I'm going to get 10 points for every math node because I'm like so behind at this point. When I do go to those math nodes of the skill tree, I'm going to find something that is probably going to work for me because it's worked for a bunch of other students so far. So tell me about how far you've taken students through this because you and Malcolm are both pretty young. When did you start the school and how, how far have students progressed so far? Yeah. So unfortunately we only started the school at the end of 2021. Yes. At the end of 2021. So we are only just started in, and up until this January, we were 100% sorry, 100% self-funded. So we are going very slowly. We'd hoped to launch our first like full-time academic class last fall. Now we're aiming for this fall. Um, but what we do have is basically a part-time accelerator program. Uh, which is sort of like an after-school program meant to accelerate um, the career side of people already in school. So at least what we can do if we can't provide our own academic backend is start to like bring in the apprenticeship backend that our school offers to some kids who are interested. And the way that works is um, they basically, if we have a good match for the program and we have a couple students going through it, we have regular calls with them where they're like, Hey, listen, I want to do this. I want to do that. Like I want one wanted to create a hackathon. One wanted to raise money for a startup. One wanted to launch their career as a public thought leader. Um, and we basically go through them, uh, the, the things that they have to achieve to meet those ends in regular calls and coaching sessions. We break down the basics that they have to achieve and we go through that. Um, so far, the first two students to go through that each raised $50,000 within the first few months. Um, I think one, oh yeah, one, one just got into Harvard. Um, so they're, they're doing well. Like, I think the outcomes look good. Um, though I, I would say that there's a selection bias in that like the people who are reaching out to us about this program are ambitious, intellectually curious, smart, self-driven. Um, but we we're seeing promising signs. And so I would, it sounds like those kids are probably a little bit older. Are they in like the you know junior high, high school range? Yes. And this is designed to be a secondary school, which is annoying for us because, you know, like we, we have younger kids too. We're, we're at um like five months, almost two and three and a half. And it's going to be a while. But we feel like things like Waldorf and like um, Montessori school are pretty good up until middle school. Because it's really at middle school where you start to get to a level with many disciplines where self-driven education just isn't going to cut it anymore and where you really need extra more advanced coaching and skills. Um, whereas before that yeah, kind of game. I, I have playing, a friend that's a, that's a part of a Montessori experimental school for the high oh, school cool. level. And I, I really feel like the big challenge is you can't have um, – you know, a group of 10 teachers, or let's see, I think it's more like five or seven teachers know Mandarin and calculus math and like, uh, like music and all of these things, because they just, you, there's not enough expertise in the, in the school to be able to advance kids at the self-directed learning level. 
And so I definitely am aware of this shortcoming and, and wonder like, okay, even if you do the Montessori system or the Waldorf system, it's only going to take you up until I think maybe the sixth grade or the eighth yeah. grade, but then you've got to make a jump into higher learning. Totally. Yeah. We, we think the system is very good up until the sixth grade. Then that's when our school starts. And I think over the long run, we'd really love to start all the way with preschool. And I, I do think that when you, when it comes to cultivating genius, starting really, really early does, does matter. Um, and I think this is something that, are you familiar with the work of Laszlo Polgar? The father of uh, Susan the Polgar, yes. geniuses? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so her daughter is, or his daughter is a um, is a chess master here in St. Louis. She started the Webster program, so I'm Amazing. very familiar with that whole thing. But go on, talk about him. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, what made him interesting to us, and why we look at his achievements with greater interest than those of others, is we really admire and trust the work of people we call shot callers you know so it's like let's say like there's a parent who's like you know olympian child is like really good at ice skating or something they're like oh well they're really good at ice skating because you know i did this this and this but like who knows like maybe it was just chance you know maybe like genetically they have all the right things for being a good ice skater um but what made laszlo polgar different is that he said basically i have a theory on creating genius i'm going to create genius put a newspaper ad out as far as I understand it to find a wife, to have genius children. He had three children and all three of them, you know, became chess champions. You know, all three of them did become geniuses in a field. So, you know, he called it, he did it, he made it happen. Um, but, you know, it, a core element of their education was they started going deep into chess really, really early. You know, like we're, we're talking age five, age six, well before the sixth grade. Um, so it is something that we think about a lot. Um, we would like to go to earlier education eventually, but because we are self-funded up to this point, we have to we have to start somewhere small. So let's talk about what's going on in the world that has prompted you to think about this. I mean, the very first time we met, I actually met you at the same time I met Malcolm was when we were on a phone call that Michael Vassar set up. Yeah. to try and settle a disagreement that Michael and I have, where um, Michael says, the kids, they are not all right. There's all kinds of problems going on in the world. What is going on with the kids today, as far as you can tell? I, I'll look not good. Um, you know, when, when you look at rates of teen depression and teen suicidality, um, so especially for teens, like that's where the graphs start to go crazy, um, especially in the past few years. But but even for, for kids in the 8 to 12 range, the 7 to 12 range, it's, it's devastating. Um, it, it's getting much, much worse. We are experiencing a genuine mental health crisis among teenagers. So that that is one thing that really has us worried. We're also, and we were talking about this before we hit record, you're coming upon this age of AI where a lot of jobs are about to become obsolete and we are educating people for exactly the kinds of jobs that AI is about to make obsolete. That also has us profoundly worried. Um, and then, you know, furthermore, we're looking at an age which, you know, you discussed with Malcolm more in which we're, we're facing massive demographic collapse and also a lot of cultural erosion. Um, and we, we see a lot of people going to school, losing their culture, deciding, you know, like me, I'm not going to have kids. I'm not going to have a family. Like, I'm just going to work. Um, and we're losing as a part of that really essential cultures. Um, and all these things are connected, right? I mean, I think one of the reasons why we are seeing a mental health crisis is that people are losing cultures that give them the strength and the resilience they need to to face life's challenges, but also enjoy life's pleasures. 
and we're we're stripping it out. And a lot of that we think comes from tr the traditional schooling system. Uh, so we we feel like primarily we want just we for our kids want a school that will prepare them for the world as it is now, prepare them to thrive, not just professionally, not just financially, but also mentally and spiritually um, and and in terms of bodily health and our current school system totally failing on that front. Um, I think you know, uh, that the, like the that's an important part of it, the personal yeah. aspect of it. So just last night I was um, showing my wife GPT-4. Mm -hmm. So this is a huge difference from the first GPT-3 that came out. And I've been talking about GPT-3 on the radio, on this podcast, everywhere I go, because I'm like, hey, this is, you go to put um, uh, an email together. You can throw that email into GPT-3 and it'll make it better. It'll make it sound a little bit better flow. It may even help you. Um, I one time put a joke into it and it said, hey, you might want to tell the joke this way because um, they might not get the punchline. Well, GPT-4 just came out and it is, I would compare it from a garden hose to a water main, oh the um, the amount of quality and the skill with which GPT-4 can handle things is way beyond GPT-3. And the thing my wife and I were talking about is you can go to it and you can ask it like really obscure questions like, hey, I have this plumbing problem with the fixture, how should I fix it? And it will tell you how to disassemble the fixture how to unclog whatever is going on with the with the water pressure and to reassemble it together. And it's done this with computer code. I've had it do it with, uh, you know, negotiating a little bit of a conflict that I had. So much of the things that maybe I normally might have been looked to in a relationship to resolve those problems, at least intellectually, hey, these are the things that I know about, can be resolved through this GPT-4 um, chat thing. Now, this is going to change the nature of what is it to be human? How do I offer value in the world? And I think more the threatening than just jobs, which is a serious one, right? How am I going to add work into the world that I get paid for? Will be, how do I add something to a conversation that can't be added by an artificial intelligence at a way more profound level than whatever I could produce? Yeah, no, that's a... It's a scary question. I mean, we're all on the precipice of an existential crisis uh, in so many ways, um, which, you know, if, <sighs> deep breaths, right? But like, we we need to tr to change the way that we're educating ourselves and, and our people. And, and I mean, beyond all that, we also don't want to, basically anything now that breeds conformity, you know, to your point, right? Anything that is just going to get you to like, what any AI would do is like, general common sense is not going to give you a competitive edge or any sort of edge in relationships in life, whatever being lumpy is, is where you're going to thrive. But also like that goes down to like a, a, a bigger meta cultural level too, to a great extent, the public school system and many private school systems as well, kind of wipe out individual family cultures, um, which themselves as, as units are very powerful and very meaningful and can cumulatively make a big difference. And by wiping all that out, you know, not only are people experiencing more mental health problems, like I alluded to, you know, they're not able to deal with problems that would be, would be easier to address if they had, you know, cultivated resilience, if they'd cultivated more faith or had better traditions to, you know, build strength in certain areas mentally, um, we're we're totally losing 
this orthogonality, this 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 weird obliqueness that different cultural traditions bring to the table. Um, and we want to see an educational system that allows people to lean in to their cultures, maintain their cultures, rather than have them erased and just made sort of, you know, homogenous, mediocre, middle of the road, you know. And I think I something that's hard for people to realize, just because like a fish inside of water, it's hard to even know, oh, I'm in, I'm in water. I didn't realize that, is that the culture that I come from feels like it's vanilla, and people forget that vanilla is actually a flavor. It's not nothing. Right. Vanilla isn't plain. It is actually a, a flavor that you add to it. But because it becomes so ubiquitous to you, you don't realize that you have idiosyncrasies. You have uh, social technologies that you've learned. You have ways mm -hmm. of dealing with problems that uh, help you like survive and thrive in the world. And as you try and strip away these things, like I came from um, what would have colloquially been thought of as a Midwestern Irish Catholic family. Nice. And so while we weren't actually Irish, um, we held this kind of idea, but inside of these like Irish songs that we would sing or the fact that we would eat, um, you know, Irish soda bread or, or, you know, the different Irish foods around St. Patrick's Day, we also had cultural values that helped us know, like, this is how you treat your wife. This is how you treat your family. This is how you handle um, people being untruthful with you. And to you, it just seems like this is what everyone knows. But what you find when you step back is no, no, no. This is, this is something that has to be taught to a child. It has to be passed down from generation to generation. And just because vanilla seems ubiquitous doesn't mean that it is at all. You, you, you have to impute this knowledge onto people somehow. And that, that's why I'm very interested when you, when you say that schools are wiping out this culture, it's, it's a, it's a scary thought. Okay. Okay. Hold on. Okay. Yeah. No, let's, let's break it down. Like, let me be your ambassador. Um, from, I guess I, I can, I can kind of explain not what just is going on, um, with progressive culture, um, and sort of what that distinct culture as a culture is doing. Um, but also, what it's like to grow up in the absence of culture, because I think I kind of got both, um, which is interesting. So um, my parents, for example, um, first became romantically involved um, as my, as they were polyamorous um, in the Bay area. So my father was married. My mother who went to his same high school, um, like so they knew each other kind of, but like they kind of got involved. Um, were also romantically involved, but consensually with my, at the time, father's now ex-wife, um, who also had other rela relationships. And, you know, so like that, that was normalized for me. Like I grew up like, well, yeah, some people are like that. I also grew up because so many of my, um, my friends' parents were lesbians. I thought I was going to marry a woman. I was sure I was going to marry a woman. I, I told, I went to school one day and said like just passively that I was going to marry my best friend who was a, a girl and that we were going to have a hundred cats and live in an RV. Cause I was like, you know, that, that sounds fun. Um, and like my school thought I was coming out. So like there was this whole thing and they called my parents and my parents were like, I don't know, like, but I was just, I was just saying what was normalized for me. Right. So like, this is a culture in which people can grow up. Um, it's not that my parents told me that I should marry a woman. Um, it, it's just, that's what I saw around me. And, and, you know, my idea, like the first wedding I went to, you know, involved a naked sweat lodge and people putting on masks in, in the woods and dancing around like that. Oh, like I, I did, I, I, my first like 
church wedding was like this really i was like what is what is this strange place you know like this is a so i'm growing up in this this opposite end of the spectrum from you but another element of this progressive culture which i think is really interesting is that um it would it would be better as a culture if it were cohesive and intentional but none of this was right like i didn't my, my parents didn't necessarily sit down and be like we're going to be polyamorous and here's the rules and here are our cultural values and we're going to raise our children with these values and while my my parents did did raise me really well i had an amazing childhood um they empowered me they they gave me a lot of autonomy um, because we didn't really have this very strong culture. I also lost a lot of really important tools. Like I never really learned how to date or approach relationships, meaning I just didn't. But it also meant that when I finally reached college and one of my male classmates was like, oh, hey, like, do you want to see a concert in New York with me? I went to school in D.C. at the time. So it was like, you know, two hour bus ride away or something. I'm like, oh, yeah, like that sounds fun. Um, you know, and then he was like, oh, by the way, like instead of wandering around the city all night before the next bus, like I, my dad got us a hotel room. So that's great. I'm like, oh, great. Like, we'll be able to, you know, do some homework and sleep at night. Like, I didn't understand that if a gentleman invites you to a show and then a hotel following the show, that there would be certain expectations. And that led to a very uncomfortable evening. Right. And like, so when you stop, when you, when you don't create a cohesive culture with cohesive values and tell people how it is and really thoughtfully approach these things, when you just drop all that and strip it out of society, you get people who are deeply broken and you get people who have very mismatched social contracts. So every time you engage with someone, there is a social contract and either you guys understand the rules by which you're playing and you know that if a man invites you to a hotel room, there are going to be certain expectations or you don't. And every, you know, I think that the expectation is we're going to do homework and sleep. And there's another expectation on the other side of that social contract. And it really is non-functional. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's a, the, the world in which we're raising children now, this sort of default progressive world in which culture has been stripped out in which religion has been stripped out is one in which people seem to be given, you know, performatively are given values, you know, you know, be open-minded, be, you know, be accepting of people. And I love that. I, we, we are very, very supportive of that. And we want to protect that, but they're missing, they're missing so much infrastructure that people like me, um, and we're seeing this in teen suicidality and teen depression and teen anxiety are not given basic tools to thrive. Which yeah, there's just... this huge proliferation now on YouTube of videos where um, conservative men will sit at a microphone and talk with a group of women that are like party girls. <laughs> and these party girls will talk about like how they um, are open sexually and they, you know, date a bunch of guys. And they're hearing this conservative guy say, hey, this is what a man values in a woman. And mm -hmm. have you thought about what it'll be like to be 40 and having like hooked up with hundreds of men, like who will want to marry you and mm -hmm. what will your value be? Mm -hmm. And you, I think one of the reasons that this is uh, so engaging to watch is it's a little like watching a car crash yeah. because these women have literally never thought about these things. No, no. They were told all about like, you can be as free and sexually liberal as yeah. you want. Yeah. And then when somebody says um, a man doesn't want to uh, marry a woman that has lots of experience, in fact, he'd rather be with a woman that has very little experience. That's mm -hmm. that's what he's drawn to mm -hmm. their mind shatter. Now, that's mm -hmm. not something the Catholic Church teaches you. 
right? Mm -hmm. It's not something that they go out of their way and they're like, we're going to explain this. It's just mm -hmm. embedded exactly. into the culture. Yeah. Well, that's why everyone's talking about Chesterson's fence, right? You know, this idea of like, well, there's a fence. Well, why is it there? I don't know. Well, then we should take it out. No, no, no. It might be there for a reason, right? Like that's the whole thing. People keep bringing it up now. Um, and that's, that's what's happening. You know, this is, the Catholic church has all these traditions, you know, Catholicism has all these, and they're very complex. And a lot of them to an outsider, if you're just looking at this from a, like, there is no God, there's only science perspective. You're like, like, we don't need that stuff. That's stupid. Um, but then, you know, you throw it and it's, and it's not just that. And so Malcolm and I, we also wrote books on relationships and sexuality. Um, and we've, we've done a lot of research into the subjects, um, to a great extent because we want to give our kids tools in the modern age to deal with these things um and it's it's not just that women are lowering their value to men when they sleep around a lot uh it's also that after you have a certain number or with with additional sexual partners the extent to which a female bonds to her male partner in terms of like oxytocin release things like that you know like sort of all the love hormones that really create that feeling of being deep and attached love start to go down meaning that you know a lot of women who remember that that feeling of first love that's so powerful you know they 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 even if they find men who are crazy about them are less likely to settle down in many cases and i've seen this happen with friends of mine who i love very much um, because they're not feeling that same sense, you know, and I've had so many of these conversations like, oh yeah, he, he's perfect. He takes off everything on paper. It's just, I don't feel that same connection with him and they don't realize why. And again, like there's so many, you know, religious traditions and stuff like, you know, Hey, you know, be careful, you know, don't, don't be a loose woman. And like, it sounds bad. It sounds really bad to say that, you know, it's just like, sleep with as many people as you want. I don't care. Like, be careful. Don't get an STD. But really, we don't, you know, we don't realize that there are these costs and we're only just starting to see what's going on there. Right. Like, yeah. And I think like some of the technologies that got added into our culture, we were just talking about GPT chat, but like, mm -hmm. you know, think about things like uh, birth control and we've talked about it in this podcast, right? It does all kinds of things besides just prevent pregnancy, right? It, it, it potentially yeah. changes the way people smell, it changes yeah. the chemicals mm -hmm. that are released in your brain. But then sociologically, right, the amount of partners that you can have goes up. And mm -hmm. the the separation between uh, the the danger of sex and and what it is. And like, when people think about it, they're like, ah, it was just a small change. I think it was as large of a change as the nuclear bomb going off, right? It, oh, it's, it's it like, huge. A, it's yeah, huge. I mean, it, it profoundly changed the way that relationship markets work, that relationships work. And also it was the beginning of demographic collapse, you know, because as soon as people, as soon as people could not have kids, they, they chose not to because kids are hard, you know, and if you don't have an exogenous cultural motiv motivator to have kids, and if society doesn't idolize having kids and you can choose to not have kids, then you're not going to have kids. Although even today, I, f I feel like if suddenly birth control were abolished in some countries, you know, like China right now, starting to close vasectomy clinics, is starting to limit access to birth control. Um, you know, they're going to start coercively <laughs> removing this. I still think their birth rate's going to be low because at this point, few people are having sex and like sex rates are plummeting anyway. Um, people are alone and depressed. Like they're not going to be having sex anyway. So, you know, th that's another factor, but yeah, yeah. Even birth control makes a big difference. And that's not to say, you know, a lot of these things exist for a reason. Like we theorize that the reason why that female attachment, that partner bonding goes down, um, after a certain number of partners is look at, look at history, right? Women would live in different kinds of environments. 
and there would be environments in which it would be in a woman's best interest in terms of like her offspring surviving if she really, really bonded to her partner, right? You know, they were a team, they were indestructible. But if she lived in a society in which she was being, you know, her her village kept getting raided, she kept getting traded as a sex slave, like it would be better for her to shut off that bonding mechanism so she could survive, you know, like she, the woman who resists, who falls in love with every, every single woman, or, sorry, every single man that she sleeps with is is going to resist. She's going to, you know, uh, get killed like much sooner. So like there are reasons why these things, you know, turn on and shut off. And honestly, like if, you know, we'll probably tell our daughters, like, this is kind of a tactical decision you're going to have to make. Do you want to be able to pair bond really well? Or do you want to, you know, have a lot of different sexual partners for more instrumental reasons? And there may be reasons for that, right? Like sex is kind of a currency, whatever, right? But like, you need to know the trade-off, know the trade-off. And that's our cultural approach to it, because we're much more like mercenary and secular in our approach, right? But like, these are still really important things. And yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, birth control, hormonal intervention, these things have profound effects. So, yeah. What is it like to be a young person dating today in a world where you're looking at your phone and you're swiping left or right or however that works? Like I came of age um, and got married right before that happened. Like I feel like I, right, the door was slamming shut, right, <laughs> as I was coming through it. And uh, now I can't even imagine what the dating world would be like. Yeah. What's really interesting is we feel like we're, we're approaching, if not reaching the point at which people who actually want to get married and have serious relationships are going to stop using online dating apps for that because they don't work for that. They've all become image-based. They are all really optimized around sex and really it's optimized around sex for very few women for very many women and they ruin standards right because it makes women think that they can ultimately marry a man whose social value is much higher than hers because a bunch of men who are being lazy are slumming it with women whose social value is lower than theirs because it's easy sex um and so it, it one like spoils men and, and like sort of screws up their willingness to commit and interest in committing and it totally screws up women because they start to think that the person that they're going to settle down with forever is going to be much higher value with them. Plus, of course, there's the issue of bonding that we discussed earlier and a whole bunch of other things, right? Like their, their social value is, is, is harmed by them having many former partners among many men. Um, so what we're seeing now among Zoomers is interesting. They're, they're dating in a much more traditional and old fashioned way. Um, you know, they're, they're based, they're dating based on social networks or they're dating based on personal introductions. They're dating even now. Um, uh, a guy who goes by Indian Bronson, uh, has, has created a, a startup called keeper where you have to put down a significant amount of money and you are, it is a matchmaking service. It is a, this is, here's your wife. Um, here's your husband, marry, marry this person or you don't get your money back. Um, so there's a strong like pressure in this case, financial, because we don't have the culture to put the pressure anymore. Um, at least, you know, among like tech elites and young people, right. You know, living in cities, um, to do that. So it's really interesting for us to see where dating and relationships is going and what we personally are doing with our own networks, um, and anyone who is listening to this, who wants to get like tapped into it, email us at partners at pragmatist.guide, um, or partners at pragmatistfoundation.com and we'll loop you in. We're, we're going to try to bring back the London season, um, because that actually was a, a social institution for matchmaking that worked really well. And it really works well for, 
um, diasporas who are still culturally aligned and would like to intermarry. Are you familiar with the London season? No, tell me not, everything. You're not a woman who reads Regency era novels or who watches shows like Bridgerton. Um, so this 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 really saw its height um, during the Regency era in in England through like Queen like basically up to the death of of uh, Queen Victoria's husband Albert. Um, it it involved basically so we had the landed gentry right in in the UK countryside. And this is a lot of people who are culturally aligned of the same general cultural class, whatever, um, who would want their kids to intermarry, but they all live out like in the countryside. They're all in like different cities and places and they're very dispersed and hanging out doesn't happen a lot. So what the, the, did they do? Well, when the men of those families needed to go to parliament to serve in parliament for that season, their families would come with them to London. They would all convene on London and they would have a series of social events over the season after being presented in a sort of formal way to the queen. So it was sort of like very like, you know, everyone sort of got on board with this. It was like a very traditional ritualized thing. Um, but they would then basically the, the prominent families would, would host parties throughout that season where it was understood that the people attending were single and looking to marry. So when you were, uh, you would make your debut in society at the beginning of the season to the queen. And it was sort of like, okay, new single lady, like on the scene, looking to marry. Uh, and everyone knew like very formally, like what you were looking for and what you cared about. Um, and so that's kind of a, it's, it worked really well. Um, it even arguably significantly influenced policy. And there are some interesting essays on that that I can share. Um, but we we think that bringing that back would make a lot of sense because right now a lot of culturally aligned groups would like to meet other people from those groups, but they live in totally different cities. That said, people often convene in places like Austin, you know, London, New York, LA, whatever. And if we were able to coordinate with other families to host a series of parties and gatherings where these people could meet um, throughout the year, sort of like a series of almost like conferences, but not really, um, we think we could make a big difference. Well, it was fun to hear about the London season, but um, as you are a mother of a very young child, we have a little bit of crying in the background, so we're going to wrap it up for now. But if people wanted to learn more about your school and about the things that you and Malcolm are doing, where would you direct them? I would direct them to the consinstitute.org for our school, um, pragmatist.guide for our books, where we talk about all these things, um, and the Pragmatist Foundation, uh, which is pragmatistfoundation.com for all of our other nonprofit efforts, uh, plus pronatalist.org for our demographic collapse-related advocacy. Well, I have so much more I want to talk with you about. This has been a fantastic conversation. So we'll have you back on again, Simone, uh, to chat all about all of the various areas that you know about. Thanks so much for coming on. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Ah, ah, ah.